the whole creative act is a pursuit. Poetry isn't a thing you are, it's a pursuit. Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Sharif Shanahan, guest editor of the magazine. This week, I'm speaking with poet Brian Tierney, who joins us from Oakland, California. Tierney is the author of Rise and Float, out from Milkweed Editions in 2022. Today, we'll hear Brian talk about that book, as well as poems from a new project that are featured in the May issue of Poetry Magazine. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sharif. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start by asking you about your personal motivations as a poet. What need does poetry fulfill in your life? And why have you chosen to build your life in and around poems? It's a big one to start with. Yes, it is. <laughs> it really is. I love it, though. You know, I, I think that there's a couple things. You know, one is for a lot of writers and a lot of people who do artistic things, I feel like at some point, usually teenage years, you have a desire to make something. And I don't know about everyone, but it took me a lot of sort of trial and error with different mediums. You know, there was photography, I wrote music, I tried to paint and sketch. And and then eventually you kind of find the one that's your instrument. Mm -hmm. um, and it started with writing music and, you know, thinking I would be Bruce Springsteen or something. <laughs> and having music and language together is how it started for me, which probably begins in my Catholic upbringing, honestly. I'm an atheist now, but... Mm -hmm. You know, Catholicism is really strangely ritualistic, but also kind of beautiful in ways. Mm -hmm. And music and the musicality of language and the ritual repetition of language, all of those things, that pulls you into poetry naturally. So I think in some ways it's something that was beyond my control. Mm -hmm. I, my control was to kind of choose to go that direction or not. Mm -hmm. And that's a luxury in itself, to be honest. It's a privilege in itself. But yeah, I think it's a force that was in me mm -hmm. for whatever reason that I had to either listen to or not. And the whole world tells you not to listen to of it. Of course. Yes. And we will, we will talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. You know, I'm, I'm really curious in the way that you started the answer to this question, which is that at some point you have a desire to make something, you said. Yeah. Where did that desire emerge from in your particular case? You know, it might be irretrievable you know, the answer. But if you were to just meditate on where that desire to create emerged from for you, where does your mind go? You know, growing up, I had a great, you know, family, but also, you know, like a lot of us, dysfunctional and a lot of mental health problems and a lot of intense emotions, good and bad. And I think maybe subconsciously, you know, making something was a way to, to understand volatility and also deep, effusive love in ways that predated adulthood, mm -hmm. you know, in, in ways that I couldn't have a language for. Only the language of making something could to kind of process certain things. Mm -hmm. You know, I write about my aunt in uh, Rise and Float, who died by suicide before I was born, about 10 years. And she was a ghost that kind of loomed in my life from an early age and we didn't know how she died for a long time they kind of hid that from us but there was something i remember as a kid feeling like i wasn't supposed to touch about her mm. i wasn't supposed to know mm. but she was very 
creative. She played music. She painted. I have a painting of hers right now in my kitchen, you know? So there was also ways in which people would say, well, you're like Trisha. And sometimes they'd weaponize it, mm. you know? And they'd mean, oh, you're unstable. Mm -hmm. What I find so striking about what you just offered about your, your aunt is the silence that she as a figure in your family was, was shrouded by and within, you know, and that there, there wasn't communication happening around her story, her death. And one of the things that I've been struck by in my conversations with other poets, you know, across generations, across all kinds of social boundaries and borders, is the way that often I have found early in life, at some point along the way, there was a constitutive element of experience that was not addressed, <laughs> that was not discussed, and that it need not be of a traumatic nature, it need not be of loss, it could exist anywhere on the emotional spectrum, you know, it could be a lack of acknowledgement of joy and happiness, right? But that there mm -hmm. was, there was non-communication, there was active resistance to articulating whatever the thing was that seems to have inspired or engendered in these folks that I've spoken to a need a real need that is nearly physiological to speak, to talk. And so I, I don't know if that resonates with you, but that, that's what your response called to mind for me. You know, and I, I thought, ah, oh, another one. <laughs> More silence, you know? It's absolutely, yeah, whatever the thing was, I think is what mm -hmm. you said. Yeah. Whatever the thing was. And I think, boy, that's everything, you know? That's poetry. The whole thing of poetry is a pursuit of the ineffable, the, the, the mystery of the universe to some extent, right? Even if that mystery is super localized, it's drawn from a, a group of people for whatever reason, the group being poets, who tend to like, I don't know, they feel that itch, mm -hmm. is kind of what you're saying. And part of that is related to, as you said, a silence, maybe another way to think of it is a question, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's something that has to be answered that most of the time can't be answered. The whole creative act is a pursuit. Louise Glick once said that to me. Poetry isn't a thing you are. It's a pursuit of something. It's a verb mm -hmm. in some way. It's not I'm a poet, which I struggle with because I, I do identify as a poet in my mind. But it's not so much a stable position as it is a consistent pursuit mm -hmm. of something. Mm. I've so been looking forward to this conversation, Brian. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> Me too. Thanks. Thank you for that. And sure, thank you for that. And you know, there there are questions that I've prepared, but your your response to that makes me want to skip ahead. Um, do you think of your atheism and uh, spiritual engagement through poetry or outside of poetry as mutually exclusive? And what would the relationship be between an atheism as perhaps a kind of spiritual orientation, and again, maybe it's not, and the ineffable, wherever that organism, that entity, that spirit exists in universe. Yeah. So we're going to have light, casual questions today, Brian. <laughs> I love the heavy question. My dad would be, I knew you would. My dad would be so happy with this because so okay, I should I should say this. My dad was a was a priest. He was a Roman Catholic priest mm. for several years before he met my mom. He worked in Patterson, New Jersey, and was assistant to the bishop. Mm. Mm. And he was kind of a theologically oriented priest. So I grew up 
I mean, they wouldn't have called it this, but it was essentially a kind of socialist-minded mm-hmm. leftist Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Again, my, my parents probably would never use those terms, but that's kind of what it was. And so, you know, as I got older, my father died. It's maybe a classic story. You fall away from God. I, I definitely was a believer. And I think my atheism, I don't know that it, it's a spiritual position, Mm-hmm. but it is kind of um, cosmological orientation, I'll say, which makes it sound better mm-hmm. to me. So I, I think it's the idea that I don't need there to be a kind of divine source for the mystery of the universe to leave me in awe and keep me questioning it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of Oppen. Mm-hmm. You know, I love George Oppen. He's always a mystery, no matter how many times I read him. It's new every time. Every time I go to Oppen, it's like the first time. Mm. He has some, I can't remember, I think it's the last poem in This and Which, where he writes, soul searchings, these prescriptions are a medical fadism, an attempt to escape, to lose the self and the self. But the self is no mystery. The mystery is that there's something for us to stand on. Which I just like, Mm. has kind of oriented me in a certain way. There's something for us to stand on. And that speaks to kind of partly why I, I've moved toward materialism. You know, physicalism, I think, is a, is a new term for mm-hmm. it. And the idea that, you know, the things of the earth, the things of the universe, you know, are physical. And there's something about that, about the concreteness of things. Even the invisible is physical. We just can't represent it as humans you know dark matter exists but we can't see it or quantify it but it like exists and it has a physical quality Mm. to it and now instead of religion or god it's like poetry which is again not uncommon poetry swoops in to be the conduit Mm -hmm. to what essentially is a spiritual interest not a religious one but a spiritual one the mystery so Oppen says that the mystery is that there is something that we do have something to stand on. Yeah. That that is the mystery. The mystery is not that we don't. I love the way that that flips expectation around what it means to be alive, unanswerable questions, right? That we maybe have the information that we really need. For me, poetry is like the best I can do to take down all of, all of the boundaries between me and being alive. That's the and, and the farther I try to cast my mind, the more diffuse the subject matter can get. And sometimes the intensity, it's it's why I think sometimes I've taught it myself to students, people have taught me, you know, beware, go in caution of abstraction. But at the same time, we're all driven by that abstraction. You know, the drive to make again, to make and to write is trying to get at something that can't be understood or spoken, or heard, exactly. Yeah, so I, I think for me, it's like, poetry, again, is that is that mm-hmm. instrument. It's trying, to, it's trying to play a frequency that I can't even hear mm-hmm. yet, you know? Yeah, I, absolutely gorgeous. Yes, and I love, like, the, the, the spatial framing of that answer, that, you know, the casting the net outward makes the subject matter, makes the, the touch of the poem or the materials of the poem more diffuse. And that resonates for me because when I think about the experience of encountering the ineffable through a poem, 
it for me spatially, if we if we continue with the spatial framing, moves us in the other direction. It moves us deeper within our bodies and deeper within or perhaps beneath the self, which is obstructing easy access to this available, ineffable thing. Yes. The division inherent in the self, you know, that it's it's this it's this way. It moves this way. And what what you've just shared actually echoes perfectly with um, another question I wanted to ask, which is really about the poems in Rise and Float, which is an exquisite book, which I love, as you know. Thank you, um, Thank Thank you. Thank you for it. Thank you for offering it to us. And in that book, you engage with many emotionally difficult subjects, right? So the transgenerational impact of mental illness, a struggle with disordered eating, a father's death from cancer, and the loss of loved ones to addiction and suicide as, you know, primary examples from, from the book. And you are, I imagine, writing from the materials of your life and experience as we all are, right, regardless of how we metabolize that experience into a particular aesthetic or of what elements of poetic craft and language we choose to prioritize in the making of our poems. And so what I wonder is about the capacity of lyric poetry for you. Does lyric poetry give you access to these subjects in a way that is otherwise unavailable to you? In other forms of healing and survival, say faith as we've talked about, or therapy, or even friendship, right? Is there something available to you through lyric poetry that is otherwise not available? Yeah, I think so. I don't know if I know what it is, but it definitely, there is something available. It's made available through lyric poetry that, you know, I think part of it is, for instance, therapy. You know, I I go to therapy. I think a a lot of people go to therapy, uh, certainly who write, you know. (laughs) And I think that the thing about therapy is that it's, the truths of it are kind of rooted in the factual. That's a little bit of a big statement, but... But they are things that happen to you, sometimes recovering things, not always trauma, but, mm-hmm. you know, there is a, something to do with what is the thing below the thing. And I think the one thing a poem does, and a lyric poetry that is dealing with autobiography, which Rise and Float is, is that it it frees you from fact. And so once you're freed from fact, but you're pursuing answers or understandings of the same source material, something different happens. Because now it's about what does speech give you? What does language give you that isn't about transcribing things that happen to you or your family, etc. Mm-hmm. But is about, you know, I shudder to say expression. You know, it's about, it's it's way more expressionist mm-hmm. than you can be in something like, religion or something like therapy or something like even maybe even friendships. It depends on the friendship, Mm -hmm. I suppose, but Mm -hmm. you don't have to be beholden. I don't think to that, to your own narrative, which seems ironic because people, as we know, read a book of poetry that is autobiographical and assume that everything in it is perfectly you. And you know, Rise and Float is all me. It's all my experiences. But, you know, I take lots of liberties, you know, and those liberties are what allow my mm-hmm. experience, I think, to echo and be 
multicolored and polyphonic to people's, you know, stereo to people's own kind of experiences and consciousness, you know, it, and that it's funny that wouldn't happen if I just sat down and wrote a memoir about it. That would be a different kind of engagement. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And it, it raises a question and it also reminds me of an essay by Louise Glick, who, who you've mentioned uh, in Proofs and Theories. There's that essay, Against Sincerity. I, I might be flattening the, the complexity of the argument, but there was a binary that Louise establishes you know, at the beginning of that essay between the true and the actual, mm. and that the objective of art, in this instance poetry, is to find the truth, all caps, immutable. And the actual are the events of the life, like the things that literally occurred, which maybe are not the vehicle to the truth. Yes. And I, I hear that's what that's what you're saying. And and so then that raises the question for me, which Louise has answered in, you know, my recapitulation of that argument as I understood it, is the objective. It's the function of the engagement. So if the function of therapy is to optimize living, to understanding oneself, to healing, it would be against the point <laughs> to, to lie or to make stuff up. I'm not sure that we can call <laughs> yeah. it lying when we do it within, within a poem if the objective is finding the truth. And so mm-hmm. is that how you think about the function or the objective implicit in the engagement of writing a poem where you have these liberties, you're looking at material that is actual, that exists in your life, in your memory, in your history, and you are pursuing something through the making of a poem around it. And is that something, how would you describe that something? I realize that we're, we're talking at the edges of, of language and knowledge, but how, you know, Louise calls it, I believe, as I remember that essay, Louis, Louise calls it truth. Yeah. How do you think about that? I, I'm, I'm immediately reminded of Richard Hugo's book, The Triggering Town, oh, which yeah. I teach to you know, beginning students especially but applies to kind of all poets. I'm surprised by how much it still teaches me every time I read it. Mm-hmm. And he has some line I'm paraphrasing in it where you owe nothing to the facts and everything to the truth of your emotions. Hmm. And I think that's kind of what Louise is talking, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of what Louise is talking about. When it comes to my my own work in that regard, I think it, I think it depends because I think there are poems that might register to someone as something that I've I've gone deeply into in my own experience and it's fiction mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um Tim Lu who we, we have in common mm-hmm. we know Timothy Lu the poet uh, from New York you know he once told this anecdote about Phil Levine okay Phil Levine reads this really powerful poem I don't even know what the poem is but this really powerful poem apparently about his sister or his cousin or somebody I think his sister dying of cancer and the whole room's like moved at the end. This this woman asks a question. He's like, I have to I have to ask you, you know, how's your sister doing? And he's like, I don't have a sister. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the extreme example, right? I don't know that I don't know that there there are, of course, ethical boundaries to what yeah. one should be lying about and not. That's not one of them, I don't think, mm-hmm. but there are there are certain ethical considerations one has to has to have in mind. But I you know I think some poems are meant to be, listen, this is something kind of what happened to me. Some of them are something else completely.
some people are writing more purely autobiographically, even though none of the speaker and the eye, of course, are different. And other people are not as much. They're thinking out loud. You know, I think of like a, a Jory Graham where this is born out of being alive, but so much of Jory Graham's work feels like it's thinking. You know, it's it's thinking out loud about being alive. And so it's different than a corollary of things that happened, of yes. an experience in a life that has like plot or has a narrative. Yes. It's just kind of like transcribing the process of thinking things mm -hmm. out, you know? I, I do, yeah. And it recalls two binaries, which I'm completely resistant to generally, but in the framework that some people use where, you know, all poems either demonstrate the mind having thought or the mind thinking. I had the honor and the privilege to interview Lucy Brock Broido years ago when mm. Stay Illusion was published. And her binary that she offered was the poet who said, come here, I'm going to tell you what it was like. And the poet who said, come here, you have never felt like this. Oh, my word. <laughs> that is gorgeous. You know? That like, is powerful, yeah. I'm, I'm going to tell you how it felt, and you have never felt like this, right? Oof. And what that means about the poet's orientation, conscious or otherwise, to the materials that is the life or that is the subject, you know, to pursue in the poem. And do you, do you feel drawn to any of, the, any of those in particular? I think I'm drawn to both, you yeah. know? And, okay. I think, and I think we can resolve the binary, which, which, by the way, for the young poets listening, just disregard all binaries. Basically. <laughs> in, in, in writing, but, but everywhere, but in writing, yes. you know? Yes. And, um, but there's, what they are are poles, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a continuum yes. between them. Yes. So I think there are, there are poets who do kind of both things at the yes. same time, yes. you know, where it's saying, I have a secret to tell mm -hmm. you. And another one is saying, this is how you needed to hear this thing you didn't know you needed to hear all this time, just like and this. And both can happen in the same poem. Yep. You know, and they can right? happen yeah. in poems that tell stories or poems that express or do both and mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, beautiful. So maybe at this point we can move into hearing some of your poems. You know, you have three poems in the May issue of Poetry Magazine. And before we talk about them, I thought maybe you could read Long Distance. Love to. Long distance. Midway through, a haunted computer types its own questions. Would you like to meet a ghost? Do you live to shovel sand or shovel sand to live? It's the best part of the movie. I think you'd like it. There's this melody one character hears after in his head. It is the answer we discover to everything not yet asked. A sort of dial tone overtakes you with dread while you're watching him listen to a windblown curtain swell into a cello or a pear-shaped person. The illegibility is the point and also the mood. Or is it vibe? I think moods are for people with choices and children. Anyway, the room's crummy. How is karaoke? Will you call again later and sing it for me? So the poem that we've just heard, Long Distance, along with The Butterfly 
and Renting, which are the two other poems that appear uh, in the May issue of the magazine, come from your eventual second book of poems, a project that I imagine is still revealing itself to you. Could you talk to us a little bit about your new project, its concerns, your goals as you understand them at this point, the terrain of exploration and discovery thematically, formally, emotionally? And, you know, is it an extension? In what ways might it be an extension of or a departure from Rise and Float? Yeah, you know, I feel like with as with Rise and Float, the second book is is kind of revealing itself like a nesting doll, which is deeply frustrating and also very exciting. Mm. Um, and maybe that's not true for how other people write, but for me, it's like I need to write five books to get one book. Mm-hmm. There's a phrase I've had in mind, Love in the Ruins, which is a title of Walker of a Walker Percy kind of, I believe, dystopic fiction. It's dystopian fiction from the 70s. It's, mm-hmm. it's been a while. I read it in college. I don't even remember it. But that idea, Love in the Ruins, keeps kind of presenting itself to me as, as I write this book. Because I think we are in a time of ruin. Ruin being maybe literal in some places and metaphoric in others. But it's a time in which there's a real antagonism to all the beautiful things that make being alive so interesting as a human. Love and beauty, to me, are in a fascist time, are radical. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the book is dealing with love, you know, love poetry. And other parts of the book are trying to allow the kind of rising militarism and fascism and the oppressive capitalist society we currently are living in to kind of encroach from the edges or bleed through its spots as opposed to writing at those things. Because I think there are poets way more suited to that and gifted in that way than I am, I think, to write at it. You know, I can only write from my own position. And so I think there's a way in which if you're awake to the world you live in, you can't not see or feel these things encroaching constantly. Again, often. There are things we live among, and to see them is to know ourselves. Mm-hmm. Just gorgeous, you know, that idea. And I think that's driving, it's driving the book to try and witness love with mm-hmm. my, you know, my wife and I have been together 15 years. She, last April, I'll say trigger warning, was hit by a car mm-hmm. while walking across the street. And we spent last year, the year Rise and Flow came out, recovering. She had mm. to learn to walk and... Mm. You know, she's she's great now. I mean, she's she recovered pretty much fully. But it, it rocks something loose in the mm. best way. And some of these poems that are in the issue come from that time where I was caretaking for her and trying to write early in the mornings, which is to be reminded, you know, of kind of what matters in a time where everything is noise. So the book is trying to bear witness to a long-term relationship that also came up against a, a kind of close call, you know? And that can happen in a lot of ways for a lot of people. And and sometimes it doesn't work out quite as well. But it's interesting. It's like the end of Rise and Float. You know, the last poem is a direct address love poem to my wife. You know, I think that it's been said that the last poem or the last parts of a book can sometimes be a signal for the next thing that's going to mm-hmm. happen. 
I don't know if that's true, but it does seem to be holding mm -hmm. true to some extent. The first question that emerged for me listening to you talk just now was you said at one point that there were other poets who maybe were more effectively exploring this other theme or interest of, of the kind of anti-capitalist, anti-war, anti-police, so on. And I just wanted to bring us back to that and kind of mm -hmm. push into that a little bit to try to understand, and forgive me if it's too probing or invasive, but I'm immediately suspicious of mm -hmm. your conclusion, you know, that um, <laughs> there, and, and not because I understand you as a gifted poet, but because what I heard inside that was that there was something about subject position. Mm. There was something about identities, perhaps, mm. that made that so, that made it something that could be more effectively be done by others. And maybe I'm making too much of that moment, but I wanted to return to it and push into it a little bit. No, no, I think that's a, you know, it's something I've been thinking about quite a bit, you know, and I think as a white man, you do have to be aware of what kind of voice you're bringing to the conversation and what kind of subject matter you're claiming as, mm -hmm. I guess, your right to engage. Mm -hmm. There's a way in which I, when I say that, I'm kind of constantly talking to myself about how do I bear witness without falling subject to trying to perform some kind of virtue signaling as, as a white person? Mm -hmm. Like, how can I do this in a way that is true to my life? as opposed to writing a poem that is about state violence, mm -hmm. of which I'm the least likely person in this country to be subjected to. Mm -hmm. You know, and so there's ways in which that's a hard balance, you know, because you don't want to renege on the poet's duty, I think, to bear some witness to the social aspects of the world that they live in and the political ones and the cultural ones. You, I never want to surrender those things. But I also don't want to confuse that for a kind of egotistical approach to bearing witness, which would be, look what I believe. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you what you already know. Mm -hmm. It's hard because you don't want to be, I'm not an art for art's sake person, though I think that is legitimate. I, you know, I do think people can just make art, you know, and it can just be beautiful to mm -hmm. look at, but whether they want to or not, there's a political aspect to that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think Jim Borstra says something like in one of the poem, one of her poems, you know, if you walk through the, the forest, you're walking through a political forest, you know, yeah. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yes. And so I guess, I guess my approach is both, you know, an ethics. It is a subject position. It's recognizing, you know, does the world need an, a white straight presenting poet to say cops are bad? Mm -hmm. Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we need, as my subjectivity and my positionality is the dominant cultural position mm -hmm. that has the most power, if I don't kind of bring that consciousness to the thing I'm making, then I'm, I'm really, you know, complicit to some extent, or at least I'm, mm -hmm. I'm allowing something. I'm not using my voice. But then there's the other mm -hmm. side, which is how much room am I going to take up? How much space am I going to eat in poetry that could be engaged in a way that actually does bring a different kind of lived experience to the expression of that encounter with police violence, you know, with capitalism, mm -hmm. with, you know, fascism. And mm -hmm. so I think for these poems, I hope that comes through once I get this book together, is that 
those things are present. They bleed in from the edges, but I, I don't necessarily write about them. They are part of the world and the universe of the book as I see it. And mm-hmm. I think that aesthetically, that's a different approach. For sure. You know? Yeah. Um, I love everything that you just said. I have more questions. And uh, one of the questions that I have is about how, how you think about love poetry as a particular mode or conduit to certain possibilities, lyrically, aesthetically, politically, socially. I think you've maybe in a way answered this already, but you know, in the way that every poem is always already a political poem, there are those who believe that every poem is a love poem, mm. right? That love poetry is the, the strongest, perhaps, expression of an anti-capitalist, anti-war, police, nationalist, and so on, poetics. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. You know, I, I, I think immediately of Montale. Mm, which? You know, I think those three books, you know, mm-hmm. Cuttlefish Bones, I'm forgetting the second book. Uh, Leo Cassioni. Yes. Yeah, The Occasions. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then The Storm. But all of them the are, I think all of them are written in a fascist moment. Yes. And there's a lot of love poetry there, especially in the mm-hmm. second one. There's, you know. Have we talked about Montale? Montale no, we what? have not. Um, I, okay, go ahead. <laughs> we have not. No, but yeah, but Montale is also somebody syntactically I love. I'm obsessed with Montale, mm-hmm. but, and admittedly, I don't read Italian, so it's, it's only mm-hmm. in translation. Mm-hmm. So there's always something about that. But yeah, but I think there's a way in which he chose to write love poems. And there yes. were, there were poems that were maybe coded against the state, yeah. you know? And I think that's true of like Ritzos and other people who wrote mm-hmm. kind of in that same general first half of the 20th century. Um, but I think there's there's something about that, right? That to do the thing that is anathema to fascism is one of the most powerful things you can do. Well, at a time where everybody wants everyone to do everything, and I get that because it feels, it's an alarming time. But there's a way in which like my power, my gift that I can do for this whole moment is to make something that moves people. That doesn't absolve me from living in my life, like helping in my community or protesting. I do those things, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But there are people who organize, you know, and that's the thing they're contributing against the kind of capitalist and truly militaristic, scary state-oriented future which, by the way, has been the, the present for, like, a lot of people in America since the beginning, but is now dawning on, you know, all the white people that, yes. oh, this is not the best, this is not the best situation, fascism. Yes. It's like, no shit, you know. So I think love poetry, you know, in a, in a time of ugliness, mm-hmm. hatred, violence, corruption, and just absolute bad faith that's coming from the right and from whoever I think love poetry is is an antidote. It doesn't mean that you know some people want something else out of a poem, and I respect that's fine. Mm-hmm. I respect that too. Mm-hmm. I think there's you know poetry is a big umbrella. Yeah, you know, it, mm-hmm. so and there's something for everyone. My whole thing is like, let's keep that umbrella big. And there's that's that that's one of the things I think I resisted about certain subject position or you know there is a the industry aspect of poetry has 
bled into people's artistry and it and mm-hmm. it asked people to perform certain things and it asked people to to take on certain things yes. and that could happen in any number of ways i think there's a lot of pressure on poets right now and it's not a pressure that is that is conducive to to freedom so to speak which i i kind of hate that word but the kind of creative freedom that is necessary to make mm-hmm. great poems so i would you know I, I, my hope for a poetry in this time is that people can write whatever the hell they want Mm -hmm. but again not absolving people from the ethics one must bring to an aesthetic practice Mm -hmm. and for me the way i can resist in an aesthetic way is to look around the world i'm in to praise beauty to find humor and tragedy to find expressions for love that other people need to hear because nothing is more powerful against the kind of forces this country and the world, frankly, are up against than love, you know, than feeling love in all kinds of different facets. You know, I think every elegy is a love poem. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess I guess love poetry is something I feel drawn to because it's something that reminds me of my humanity in a time that is dehumanizing for all people. And some people way more than others, of course. Yeah. That goes without saying. Thank you so much for that uh, beautiful, thoughtful response, Brian. Um, I want to go back to Montale. I want to ask you about love. I want to hear another poem. It's just you're, you're taking me to all these different places, and I know that you're doing that for listeners, too. We had Marie Howe on the show earlier this month, and I asked her a question which I recognize is impossible, and that returns to me now uh, listening to you speak about love poetry that I want to ask you, you know, given all that you just said about love poetry, but also the emphasis on love poetry within the second project, which is, and again, I know that it's impossible. (laughs) And I apologize in advance. Um, How do you define love? Wow. You know, um, maybe I'll come at it from from a less direct. For me, love is is somewhat recognizing that your self, as you know it, is inextricably linked to another self mm. in some way, you know? And that love can be friendship. It can be, you know, platonic. It can be erotic, you know? It can be familial. It can be romantic, whatever, you know? And mm-hmm. and I think that's something that is that's a good way, that's a segue into another idea I was having while I didn't get to get to it when I was answering the last question, which is I think love poetry is broad and mm-hmm. it isn't just a sonnet. It's not Shakespeare's sonnets, all of mm-hmm. it. You know, some of it is, they don't, some things don't seem like love poems and they are. And sometimes, you know, I think erotic poems are love poems. You know, I mean, that's mm-hmm. a different kind of, of thing, poems of desire. And mm-hmm. so I think love takes on, has many faces, but it also fundamentally is a humbling of the self in the face of another self or many selves. Thank you. Could we hear renting? Absolutely. Renting. Dogs barking, do you hear me? Do you hear me? Yes, I do. The abridged version. Sun having shone all day on their chains. Late lunch squirrels lathing loquats with their buck front teeth and carrots disappearing from the community garden for seasonal soups no one likes to eat. Least of all me. Unless there is good country bread, of course. And there is, often. 
even if there's little else in the house to have. Simple black tea or green or white or green beans and garlic. Monday's monkfish. Cheese and apples from the market stalls selling ponytails of sage and premium coffee we can't afford and sometimes splurge on. Your lipstick drying on a porcelain cup by a line of bruised apples. A free concert of insects singing when the light withdraws and the air is cooler and we prop the screen door open to the world and the boundary that was false and never there is proved not there between us or anything. You, me, the half-concealed palm out back we fucked against once when our landlords were away and which no one owns or ever has, least of all landlords, who even when they do can't own a tree. you, Brian. I wanted to ask uh, just one more question, which is about poetry and mentorship. Uh, I understand that you're a teacher of poetry and you've studied with a host of celebrated poets, you know, during your time at Warren Wilson and as a Stegner and elsewhere. What has mentorship as a mentor or a mentee meant to you? You know, and what does teaching do for you? spiritually or artistically? You know, mentorship, in my experience of being a mentee, you know, has the best people who've helped me, who've mentored me creatively, have been those who understood what I wanted to do and tried to help me do it better. Mm-hmm. And that's different than coming to a poem, assuming there's something, one, that needs to be fixed, but two that there's a kind of rigid set of rules that one applies to all writing and all poems. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there are some that I think we all generally accept as practitioners. There are some things that are general, but you know, the mentors that did the most for me saw me and they saw something about my mind on the page, not the page as a place to teach larger lessons about poetry. But the page is a place to teach me about myself as a poet. Mm-hmm. That isn't as, well, it's, yeah. not, it's not as yes. present maybe as we think. You know, I've been very fortunate to have a lot, as you said, a lot of esteemed and terrific poets who are also great teachers mentor me. But that's kind of what I try to bring to students or poets I work with mm-hmm. is to meet them on the page. We want to ask not is this thing good or bad, but how is it built? Mm-hmm. What is this poet trying to do and how can we help them do it? Mm-hmm. And that's really hard. I mean, on, on even as a teacher, that's hard. There's times when I know I'm projecting taste or I'm projecting my subjective position, you know, in relation to, you know, poetry onto mm-hmm. it. Yeah, to talk to, to answer your question about, you know, how does it kind of uh, affect me to teach and be a mentor? One of the things is that it. I often find what poets suggest to younger writers not to do or avoid are often the things that they do and are very self-conscious about. That's something I've, is a learning experience if you're open Mm -hmm. to it. If you're like, oh, that's something I do. Why am I, and why am I saying not to do it to them? Is it something I don't want to do? I have anxiety about for the future of of the things I work (laughs) on. It's very interesting mm-hmm. to me, and it's. I, I think other. I think that'll resonate with other people. I'm not sure, but it's been my experience that you'll get advice that is meant to swerve you away from the anxieties that that particular maker mm-hmm. also has about their own work. Mm-hmm. 
And that can be instructive. You know, that brings me back to my own practice in a different way. I think you also, you learn how to articulate what's happening on the page in a way that can be really powerful to your own practice as a poet. Mm -hmm. There's that balance between, you know, you know a lot and then you know too much, right? You want to keep that mystery. Mm -hmm. And the more I write, the less I know how to write. <laughs> I find like I know conceptually, but it's still a mystery. You know, I still struggle to make things like anybody does. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm always a student. I try to always be a student. Thank you so much for that response, Brian, and for your time today. Um, I thought to close, uh, we could hear a poem that you mentioned earlier in the conversation from Rise and Float. You're the one I want to watch the last ships go down with. Would you read that for us? I'd love to. You're the one I want to watch the last ships go down with. For Jess. Dr. Redacted will tell me not to tell you this. Like this. In a poem. How it's all right, love, that we don't love living. Even actors don't exactly love the spotlight they move through. As your sister, the actor, had told us. They just need to be lit for narrative motion to have meaning. As such it is, with artifice and embarrassment, I move through fear to you tonight. Where I had dreams a short nap ago about lines of poetry I struck through with everyday blues, month after month and the dream after dream. An attempt, I guess, to forget if I could. Defeat sometimes is defeat without purpose. The news at least tells me that much. I know now, in fact, we don't have to be brave. Not to survive a night like any we've looked on together. Watching blue-tinted snow once in a Kmart parking lot's giant two-headed lamp. And my father hooked up, up the street, with no chance of waking. As many years ago now as how much longer I lived with you than without. Forgive me again that I write you an elegy where a love poem should be. That poem is so fucking gorgeous. <laughs> um, Brian, thank, thank you, you. so much for being with us today and for making time for this conversation. It's a privilege. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, it's been wonderful. I'm honored. A big thanks to Brian Tierney. Tierney is the author of Rise and Float, out from Milkweed Editions in 2022 and winner of the Jake Adam York Prize. He lives in Oakland, California. You can read three poems by Tierney in the May 2023 issue of Poetry, in print and online. This show is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Reservoir, Alabaster de Plume, John McCowan, Rob Mazurik, and Irreversible Entanglements. Okay, that's it. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and thanks for listening. <laughs>